This morning, uh, I'm going to take you in a different direction than I would normally. Um, I'm going to speak to you from a different text, and I'm going to speak to you more pastorally this morning. After a, a lot of prayer this week, and after actually meditating on the psalm that we read last week, actually Psalm 18, the first little portion, I, I want to take you into a, a direction that I think is necessary for us this morning. But first, let's, let's start by just looking at that psalm real quickly. Psalm 18. Go there with me. We're just going to look at the first six verses. The psalmist writes here, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved rescued from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry to him reached his ears. That's good to know, isn't it? No matter how bad things are, no matter how deeply we go into distress, God hears from his holy temple the cries of his people. Now, this was a prayer that I believe was prayed by Jonah as he was in the belly of the fish. When you go back, don't do it now, but when you go back later and read Jonah, you'll see that it's almost word for word in some places. It was this prayer that he prayed when he had let selfish ambition and conceit dominate his thinking and keep him from doing God's will. Pride was Jonah's deadly enemy that put him in the belly of the fish. And it nearly destroyed his life. His pride had distanced him from God. It had also caused him to seek the damnation of others. Pride is a wicked enemy. It's a wicked enemy in our hearts. His pride kept him so self-focused that he was also depressed and wanted to die rather than go do what God had called him to do. His pride caused him ultimately to dishonor God and his actions. But as we read the story of Jonah, as we read this psalm right here and continue to read through this psalm, you're going to see in both stories that God does rescue the prideful. He rescues us from the enemy within. Amen? He does. He can do that because he's God. And he can hear us when we cry. He can hear us when we cry out because we've let this prideful attitude of selfishness or conceit dominate our actions. But isn't it better for us, rather than waiting to get into the bottom of distress because of our pride and our selfishness. Isn't it better for us to be putting sin, the sin of pride in particular, to death daily? We must do this. It's so important for us to do this because pride, pride is in our face every single day. We have this ever-present enemy in our unredeemed flesh that will lead us to selfishness and conceit. 
I was talking with Dylan before the service started, and he actually said something that was actually written here in my notes, which was just another confirmation to me that the Holy Spirit was leading me in this direction this week. Pride is considered to be the sin that births all other sins. Listen to this quote. Nothing so infects our total being as selfish pride. Pride renders, tears apart nations as ethnic groups assert themselves. Pride corrupts governments as politicians enrich themselves. Pride destroys businesses as executives wink at accountability. And then more importantly, listen to this. Pride neutralizes the gospel as church members celebrate themselves. And I would add to that, celebrate themselves rather than Christ. As I was thinking about the psalm, my family and I read it a couple weeks back. Before we read it here, we try to read the psalms that we're going to read on Sunday mornings. And as I read that first half, my sons and my wife and I talked about this a little bit. And then as I thought about, you know, Jonah's story I recognize that this, this pride that lies within our unredeemed flesh is such a, a deadly enemy, and it needs to be put to death. And in God's grace to us, he's given us a remedy for this pride issue. He's given us an answer, a way to put it to death. And he's given that to us in the book of Philippians. Go there with me, Philippians 2. This will be the focus of my message this morning. Philippians 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. This is God's remedy that is laid out for us to put our selfishness to death with. Paul writes in verse 1, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind, this thinking among Yourselves, that he's talking to the church. In your church, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be asserted or grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the remedy. Look to Christ. Listen, he he died because of your selfishness. He became a slave to be obedient unto death because of your disobedience, because of your love of self, your conceit. My conceit, my love for myself. And what Paul's doing here in this letter to the Philippians is he's, he's warning the Philippians in many ways, but here in particular, he's warning them that their unity as a church will be attacked by this enemy if they're not careful. 
Their unity will be disrupted. It will be distorted if they do not guard against the enemy of pride that hides in our unredeemed flesh. He's telling us that the enemy of pride is prevalent. It's here all the time. We carry it with us even into the church. And the enemy of pride manifests itself in our flesh and in our fellowship through things like, he says here, selfish ambition, a rivalry, and conceit. I'm going to unpack those two words real quickly for you, okay? Make you think about this a little bit more personally. Because he's speaking to a church, a congregation, just like you. And by the Holy Spirit's wisdom and inspiration, he is speaking to you this morning. Selfish ambition. It's the attitude that motivates us to seek out the praise and attention of others instead of seeking to give attention and praise to others. It's looking to gather up all kinds of praise rather than rejoicing in the grace and the goodness that you see in others. It's being jealous of others not saying good things about you. Selfish ambition. Conceit or vainglory, I think the King James might have said. Conceit is an attitude that makes us feel superior to others, like we do not need anyone else's help. I don't need the church. I can do this on my own. It's it's that attitude, or it can be this attitude, an attitude that makes you feel that your needs are actually more important than the needs of all those others around you. That's conceitedness. You say that your needs are so great, you don't even care about the needs of others. You don't even see them. You don't perceive them. And you want everyone to see how needy you are. Now, both of these, selfish ambition and conceit, are two enemies that must be taken seriously in the church. They must be taken seriously because they can disrupt our fellowship with God, as we saw with Jonah. His fellowship with God was disrupted by his selfishness. But it also disrupts our fellowship with others in the church when we don these attitudes. But again, Philippians 2, 3 and 4 in particular, I think will help us defeat these two indwelling enemies. Here, God's telling us that selfishness and conceit are defeated by, number one, the revelation of Christ's submission. Why Jesus was submissive to the point of death. That's in verse 3. And he also tells us that these two enemies can be defeated, secondly, by the application of Christ's compassion. So one is recognizing why Jesus was submissive to the point of death. That will kill pride and deceit and selfish ambition. And then recognizing it and then doing something about it in light of it. Applying Christ-like compassion that you've received toward others. Applying it toward others out of thankfulness for his submission, thankfulness for his compassion. We'll see that in verse 4 a little bit. In 2-3, God reveals to us, number one, that Christ's submission was the result, or it resulted from the need that we have. It was the result of our selfish ambition, our sinful pride. He came down. He became man because of our sin. And here in particular, he will point out two of those, selfish ambition and conceit. Look what it says again. Do nothing 
from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Now, ultimately, Paul's going to say, do that because that's what Christ did. Now, here's the thing. None of us are the perfect incarnate son of God. But we belong to him. His spirit now lives in us. He now controls us, dominates the heart of the believer. So this is something that we can obey. This is something that we are called to obey. This is a a command here. Do nothing that would cause Christ to be re-crucified afresh. Things like selfishness, things like conceitedness, pride, prideful acts. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Justin quoted out of 1 Peter 5.5, I think, earlier. And it talks there about finding favor with God by humbling ourselves before God. And he mentioned that if we could just grasp that one verse, it would probably eliminate most of the sin problems in the church. I would say the same is true on these two verses, 3 and 4. If we actually applied verse 3 in the church, unity would flourish. Christ would be magnified. You know what I mean by magnified? We say glorified all the time here. We say magnified too. Made much of. Displayed broadly. Right? That's what we want to do as Christians. And so to do that, he's telling us some very important instructions here so that we can deal with selfishness. And and I, I hate selfishness. Yeah, I don't always see my selfishness. Other people can see it. I have a hard time seeing it. I think I'm justified in my actions. But my flesh, my flesh is prone to this. And so I need instructions. So he says here in verse 3, count or consider others as more significant, important than yourself. Why are we given this command? Well, I think he makes it clear as we go through the text down to verse 8. He gives us this command because... Jesus, the sovereign savior of sinners, the king of the universe, he did this very thing. He considered our neediness as more important than his glory and his greatness. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross because of our selfishness. Does this help you recognize how wicked selfishness is? I hope it will. And I'm going to tell you, in the church, this is what causes problems. This is what destroys congregations. This is at the root of all of our sins. It destroys marriages. It destroys parenting relationships. It destroys friendships. And it must be rooted out. It must be put to death. And this is the only way we can do it. By God's grace, dwelling on Christ's submission, why he was submitted to the point of death, so that we could now do what he did and amplify or magnify his greatness by considering others as more significant than ourselves. And we, we should be able to do that as, as redeemed sinners. The way that we should do that is just by simply focusing on who we were before Christ saved us. We were unlovely outcasts. We were absolute failures, unworthy, wretches, sinners, Wicked violators of God's goodness. 
But then Jesus came to this earth and he acted on our behalf, not because of our worthiness, but because of our neediness. Now, the point of this is this. You see others who are struggling and you go to them, not because they are victorious. You go to them because you know they need help. They need grace. They're needy like us. Paul's telling us through this whole section here, chapter 2, that this should motivate us as Christians. Motivate us to put our pride to death. And here's how we do it. By humbly serving those who struggle like us in the fellowship of the saints. By looking back to what Christ did in humbling himself on our behalf to unite us into one body. You know, when we don't consider others as more significant than ourselves, it'd be the equivalent of lopping off your left hand physically. I don't use my left hand a whole lot. I'm right-handed. I don't really need it. You know, it's gone. Well, that would be insane. It would be insane. When we don't consider others as more important than ourselves, that's what we're doing in the body of Christ. Listen. I would have a hard time doing what I do for a living with one hand. My left hand really doesn't do a whole lot other than hold things. My right hand draws. My right hand designs. My left hand is just my helper, but it's necessary. And I must consider it as important as my right hand. And that's what we must do if we're going to put death or put pride to death in the body of Christ. Now, I've got to give you a warning about if you take this verse seriously, okay? If you take verse 3 seriously as Christians, as you, as you should, this is a command from Jesus, all right? It's not an option, not a suggestion. If we take this seriously and we actually put on Christ-like attitudes in the church, where we put to death selfishness, it may cut into your personal plans for life. It may cut into your playtime It may cut into your vacation time. It may cut into your free time, your me time, whatever that is. It may put it to death. But let me just say this. If you read the Apostle Paul very much at all, he seemed to be a pretty joyful man in spite of a lot of trials, a lot of hardships, and a lot of service. Because I think he understood that putting on Christ-like attitudes like this like considering others as more significant than himself, applying that to his life, he discovered that actually he was more joyful when he was doing this than at any other point in his life. When he was humbly counting others as more significant than himself by by sharing his time, his life, his resources, and all that he had, he found abiding joy because it was the joy of Jesus He says, complete my joy, flesh it out, fill it up by doing what I'm doing. I'm joyful. You realize when he's writing Philippians, he's in prison for the gospel. He's in prison and he says, this is okay. I get to minister to the whole Praetorian guard. People in Caesar's household are getting saved because of this. He is considering the guards as more important than himself. Listen, when we focus on ourselves, we are the most miserable wretches in the world. Self-focus is destructive. 
I love John Piper. Piper says, one of his sermons, he says, I don't believe there'll be any mirrors in heaven. There'll be no focusing on self. We'll only be looking to Christ. That's what we want to do here now in our fellowship. Because when we actually share our lives like this, we actually give our time and our resources to each other. This abiding joy that Paul experienced will be ours because it allows us to magnify Jesus' love and his humility by actually living it out personally. You're not just reading a narrative. You're living this out with the Philippians, with the Thessalonians, their faith and hope and love. It's being made manifest to the world. Now listen, as, as I read this text, and especially after this week, studying this, I don't claim to have figured out how to do this perfectly, okay? I don't claim that, that I have this down, but I will tell you this, it is my ever-growing pursuit, my ever-growing desire. And it is because I actually think that this is the way that God intends for us to exalt Christ, put pride to death, and actually edify the church all at the same time. I believe that selfish pride in my flesh is defeated by humbling myself through the elevation of others. Seeking the good of others above myself. Doing to them what I want done to me. Look at verse 3 again, the last part. That's what it says. This, This pride is defeated by humbling ourselves through the elevation of others. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Pride dies when we are focused on magnifying Christ practically by lifting up others in the church, by edifying his bride. Listen, you want to make me a happy man? You do something nice for my wife. You send her a card. You call her. You give her a gift. You praise her. There is nothing that makes me happier in this life when my bride is cared for. How much more so in Jesus' case when his bride is nourished by its members, elevated in encouragement. It will lead to God-exalting praise in the church and in the world. Again, I just, just want to keep on saying this so it gets into our minds I believe that Christ-like submission will defeat selfish ambition. But again, there's a warning with that. Christ-like submission requires something of us. It requires Christ-like actions, personal affections, personal sacrifices. Is that not what Christ gave? You think about this. The sinless Son of God, sovereign over the universe, walking on this earth, Feeling pain, seeing sin, being cursed in our place. That was personal sacrifice. It was willing personal sacrifice for the betterment, for the good of his bride. But it took time and energy for Jesus to actually do that. It takes time and energy for us to do that. If we're going to help others understand this, this is the warning. If you're going to love them like Christ loved them, it's not going to be convenient. It's not. We're not convenient people, are we? We're a mess. 
Just this week, I thought, I have everything figured out in my life. I did. I actually kind of thought that. Things going well. And then something was brought to my attention that I could not see, did not see, would not have seen, apart from God's grace. And I recognized I'm such a prideful person. And I don't even see it. I don't even see it when I deal with you. I had a conversation with Justin last week. And we were talking about some of this and how our wives are such great blessings to us because they help us see what we don't see. We can point out the errors. We can point out our frustrations. Listen, sometimes, to be honest with you, sometimes you guys frustrate us, okay? I'm just going to be honest. I'm sure we frustrate you. I know that's true. But sometimes our flesh doesn't know what to do as pastors. And we tell our wives what we think. We say everything to them we'd never say to you, okay? They're their filter, and they are God's gift to us. But as I, as I struggled this week, that was made really evident to me. This is an area in which, all joking aside, I hadn't seen. And it was brought out. And I've seen how it can be so destructive in my family, in this church, and in my witness. And so here's what I want to do. I want to ask you to do something. Put on Christ-like love and expect it to be inconvenient. It's going to call you to examine yourself. It's going to call you to give up some of your personal rights to care for others practically. It's going to call you to walk in a personal relationship with those who are needy in the church. Give them personal affection. And it's going to take Christ-like commitment to do that. It's not something you can work up on your own. Okay? Listen... People are, like I said, a mess, and they frustrate our flesh. But there are things that the Holy Spirit will do through a willing vessel that is submitted and humble before God that is amazing. He'll allow us to have perseverance and encouragement to offer those who are constantly needy. Every day, church, as Christians, unless you never interact with any human being, every day... As Christians, we have an opportunity to choose selfishness or to reveal Christ's love every single day. I generally gravitate towards selfishness, and I want that to change. We, we will do this by giving ourselves away freely, sacrificially giving up our life to others, physically giving up our time to others, spiritually spending time laboring with others so that Christ is formed in them. Here's the beauty of this. When you pour your life out as a living sacrifice, an offering unto God, you forget about you and you fall in love with Christ all over again. You forget about your self-centeredness, your desires, when you see this opportunity to magnify Christ in the lives of others and you give yourself to that pursuit. It's amazing how much joy fills your life as opposed to thinking about your problems, your struggles. When you do that, you tend to grow inward, inward, inward to the point of depressed, discouraged. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be brought together by considering others as more important than ourselves. And the Lord Jesus equipped us to do that. Look with me at John 13. 
He equipped us to do that, and he actually gave us an example that shows us how to do that in John 13. He's telling us, God's telling us through the letter here from John, that we can put on Christ-like attitudes that may be sacrificial at times so that we can care for others because God's spirit is at work in us for the good of his body and for the glory of his name. And he's given us an example of what that kind of action looks like here in this text, an example of Christ's humility that he intends for us to follow and emulate. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now this can mean a couple of things. He loved them all the way up to the point of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. But I believe that this probably has more to do with he loves them to the full, all the way through. Now listen, if you know anything about the disciples, they weren't lovely, all right? I mean, they're bickering out of selfish pride about who's going to get the best position in heaven. Peter's saying, I'll go with you anywhere, Jesus. And then Jesus gives a statement, or he gives a statement about Jesus being the true and living God, the, the sovereign one, the Messiah, the one that the church is built upon, and then turns right around and says, uh, I'm not going to let you go to the cross. He says, get behind me, Satan. But it says he loved them to the full, to the end here, in spite of their neediness, their, their failures. And it says in verse 2, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and took, or, and taking a towel, a towel of a slave, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. It's the ultimate act of service. This was the lowest position at the table. He considered them as more important than himself. Verse 6 says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Okay, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed is, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not, not all are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and master, Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. He didn't literally mean we had to wash each other's feet. What he meant was we have to have this attitude of humility in the church. And listen, if we call Jesus master and our teacher and we do not do what he says, 
Is that not hypocrisy? It is. He's given us this to move us into action. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome to us. Listen, I recognize that it's hard sometimes to consider other people as more important than ourselves because of our selfishness. It is hard. It is a difficult thing to do because it requires dying to self. But it magnifies Christ. Isn't that so much better? Think about what your selfishness has earned you throughout your life. When you've asserted yourself, when you've boasted in yourself, don't you just hate when guys do that? I just hate to hear people boast about their anything, anything they do. It disgusts me personally. Now, if somebody else praises them, that doesn't bother me. But usually selfishness always leads to destruction. It always leads to corruption. But when you magnify Jesus, what bad things happen in that? When you follow his commands and you seek to give your life away as a sacrifice for his praise, guess what? You end up with joy. Isn't that a surprising bonus? Be a slave. Well, a slave is suppressed. A slave is is downcast, right? No, not in Christ, because Christ was the ultimate slave. He gave his life a ransom for our souls so that we could now give our lives a ransom to praise his soul, to praise his life. I think that John 13 and Philippians 2 3 and 4, I think are good examples for us to follow. Good examples to set our attitudes upon here today. So let me give you some questions to help you do that. All right? Now these are prying questions. These are not easy questions. I had to write them down here specifically because these are important, I think. Here's the first one. If Jesus is your teacher and your Lord, you're going to do what he says. Are you actually humbling yourself? Are you humbly counting others here at Sovereign Grace as more important than yourself? Are you actually doing that? Not in theory, not in your heart, but in your heart and in your actions. Are you doing that? And here's here's another question that falls from that. Are you even aware of the struggles that other people in our church family are having. Do you even know? Have you spent enough time with anyone here to actually know what their struggles are? And if you are aware, now this is where it gets kind of uh, touchy, okay? Now, I'm saying this because this is my besetting sin, okay? And I figure that I'm not alone. If you're aware of the struggles of others, Are you critical of their struggles or are you committed to their care? It's easy to be critical. It's hard to care. It requires the grace of God to do that. Criticism, that's my flesh. It's easy. Do you see the constant failures of other people? Do you spot them? Easy to find them? Do you see the lack of discipline in some people that just drives you crazy? Do you see people wasting their time and their lives on stupid things? They just, you just have to vent it out, right? We've all done that. But listen, here's the question. If you see those things, the constant failures, lack of discipline, wastefulness of life, 
How does your heart truly respond to these things? Is it with self-conceited pride or Christ-like humility? That's what we have to think about. Listen, saints, if, if you see the burdens and the failures of other members in our church family, here's what you need to do. You need to ask yourself, what am I doing to help them carry these burdens personally? And when I say carrying their burdens, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean coddling them in their sin. I don't mean enabling self-pity. But what I'm asking for this is this. Are you willing to carry their burdens by humbly helping them correct their course? Are you willing to carry those burdens with them to help them correct their course through personal edification, not critical examination? Listen, church, it's, it's all too easy to see everyone else's faults in the church and yet completely miss the conceit that is in our own hearts. Very easy to do that. It's easy to point out faults in others when we are blinded by the pride in our own heart. It's a lot easier to criticize the failures of other people rather than serving those hurting people. We're all guilty here, okay? We're all guilty here. I know that's true. But this is, this is where the good news comes in. We don't have to remain in that sin. We have repentance granted to us by Christ, who thought of us as more important than himself, to give us an escape from this temptation. And that's what he wants us to do here by learning this. He wants us to see the failures in others, not to criticize them, but to go help them with this battle that they're struggling in. So I want to ask you to help me pray about that. Help me pray that we will all humble ourselves and put on a humble Christ-like heart and seek to serve those in this church for whom Christ has died for, though they're not walking perfectly as we think they ought to walk. I think we have to do that. Listen, sometimes, sometimes when, we, when we see people struggling and we recognize it, it's not criticism to call it out. It's not criticism to call it out. It becomes critical and criticism whenever you call it out and you walk away with your hands like this. You're unwilling to help. It's hypocrisy too. Aren't you glad Christ didn't do that? He came down and put both hands to work to bring us out. But we need to pray for this. We need to pray for a humble Christ-like love and heart to seek out those in need in our church. But if we just stop at praying, we have fallen short of what God calls us to do by his spirit. We're called to pray, but we're also commanded to put our prayers into action by actually seeking out people who are discouraged. Ask yourself the, you know, this question. When was the last time you did that here in our church family? When was the last time you reached out to struggling parents in our church who heard their kids drive you crazy on a Sunday morning? When have you actually went to them personally and said, brother and sister, I love you. Your kids are out of control, but I want to pray with you. I want to care for you. I want to give you some suggestions. I'll walk with you through the pattern. I'll tell you what I did and what I failed at. 
When was the last time we did that? When we see these issues, when do we actually go into action and deal with those biblically? That's what we're called to do as Christians, to magnify Christ. When was the last time you have visited someone who has withdrawn from the fellowship? When was the last time you joyfully used those spiritual gifts that God has given you to magnify Jesus by carrying that gift to those in need of it? We want to worship Christ, right? We want to make much of Jesus. Singing songs about it, that's wonderful. Praying prayers about it, that's wonderful. Hearing sermons about it, that's wonderful. But if it all falls there and ends, it's pitiful. If we take the knowledge in, it will puff us up if we don't take it out. Pride will come back in from the back door if we don't humble ourselves through Christ-like submission. That's the only way to defeat this enemy. The only way to lead us to Christ-exalting actions is to submit to God's will here. Look at Philippians 2.4, the last part here. Here in 2.4, God reveals to us how to defeat this enemy within that disrupts our joy, that discourages the church. Secondly, he tells us that Christ-like compassion will defeat selfishness and conceit. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Look not only to our own interests. You could take the word interest and insert the word needs but also to the needs of others. In other words, he's saying we must elevate the needs of others to the same level as our needs. Do you do that? If you want to put pride to death, are you doing that? You all have needs. I have needs, right? I have interests. And listen, when I get in my mind something that I want to do, it's fixed in my mind. I'm going to take all my energy and do all that I can to make that happen. All right? I'm fixed on my interest, my my need. But what we're being called on to do here is to elevate the needs that we see in others to the same degree as ours, our personal needs. That's what we must do. Not just because we want to care for one another. That's part of it. But we want to make much of Jesus in the care for one another. That's all of it. That's why we do it. Elevate. And the way I can see how to do that is this. When I look out here and I see Justin struggling with something or I see Christy struggling with something or Haddon or Ryan or OB or whoever it is, and I look at them and in their struggles, it's driving me crazy because I've got the answer. I've got the answer. I know the answer. Stop it. Just quit what you're doing and do the right thing. That's the answer, right? It'd be nice if it was that easy. But when I look at them, And I think, they haven't arrived yet, but Christ died for them. He sought them out when they were at their worst place and gave up his life on a cross to sanctify them through the church. So my role in that is to patiently consider them as more important than myself. Recognizing that I am just as needy, I am just as unworthy of that grace that I've been given by Christ, but at the same time, I am thankful for it, and we should want to share it. We need to look after the interests and the needs of those that Christ died to unite us to personally.
So more questions here, okay? Are you doing that? Are you humbly doing that? And here's a way to test your heart. Do you see the needs and problems in our church? Right? Yeah, that's easy. Listen, you can see things in my life that are off easily. I don't see them. I got blinders on. Okay, that's just the way it is, right? You can see them. You can see my back. I can't see my back, right? So you can see things that I have pushed back that I have not recognized. That's easy to recognize. What's harder to do is this. Consider this. Do you consider the needs and problems of others as if they were your own problems? Do you see those problems that you see in others as if that's my problem too? Struggling parent, the depressed soul, the angry dad. That's my problem. You know why it's my problem? We belong to Christ. We're a family. We're a body. And if my left hand hurts, it affects the way my body functions. So ask yourself, if you are considering and seeing the needs of others, are you willing to serve their interests, their problems? Are you willing to give up your rights for the sake of their good and God's praise? It may be hard to do that, though. And here's why it might be hard to do that here. If you're, you, if you're here and you, you don't even know that people have needs in this church family, or you don't know what they are, here's why it's, it's probably difficult. There may be people here who, because of fear, have kept their problems inside. Fear of being criticized by Christians. The fear of being criticized by a brother or sister in Christ. If I actually share my neediness and my struggles... So they've taken those problems inside, which is a form of conceit. I can deal with it. I'm not going to share it with anyone else. Fear can be attached to pride as well. I know that that happens. If you don't know that people here have problems, you haven't spent any time with them. Okay? But it also might be that if you have spent time with them, they may be afraid of you being a critical person that if they share this, They're not going to receive help. They're just going to have a finger wagging at their face. So let me just say this practically. If you are by nature, that is fallen nature, unredeemed flesh, if you are by human nature a critical person, one who can spot problems in others and point them out very easily and even vocalize them, please stop. Please stop. Stop. Consider your motives for just a moment. When you see those problems, ask yourself this. Are my criticisms selfishly motivated? Are they conceited criticisms? Am I speaking up because I see a problem because I want to honor Christ by stepping into that person's life and helping them overcome these struggles or am i simply just venting my frustrations because they are not as good as me at what i am criticizing are you venting your pride by comparing others to yourself it's not the way i would have done it well why don't you step in and do it with the person who's trying to do it so please stop
if you're doing that. Please stop. And here's why you need to stop. You may be hindering the weak brother or sister among us from speaking up and seeking out true help because they need it, but they're afraid of being criticized for confessing it. So instead of just speaking out against the things that frustrate you and you vent, instead of speaking out like that about other people's failures, do this. It's a simple solution. Simple, but it's hard. Instead of speaking out, Go speak to that person in private. Go walk in their shoes with them for a while. Go listen to their struggles. Matter of fact, not only listen, seek to pray with them through those struggles on a regular basis. I guarantee you it will change your criticism. You'll become a part of their life. They'll become a part of your life. It'll transform you. It'll actually do what Romans 15, we won't read it, but Romans 15, 1 to 7 talks about at the very end, talks about how that we as a church ought to be bearing with the weak, those who are strong are to bear the weak, so that, his purpose clause is, so that with one voice we might be able to glorify God together as a church. What he's saying in Romans 5, or 15, 1 to 7 is practically and personally, he wants us to live in harmony By living together to produce a beautiful song of praise to God through our humble care for one another. That's what he's saying. So if you're a critical person, just repent. Repentance here means actually turning away from the criticism and turning to God's grace to go to the person personally and walk with them through their struggles. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I'll confess. I'm in this category. Okay? I'm in this category. I can see everybody's struggles. I can be critical. And this is such a slap in the face to me that I can't even explain to you how bad it hurts. Because the whole time I feel this way, I have this major sin hanging over my head that I couldn't see. And it took someone doing that for me, coming to me, speaking to me privately. Not just venting about it, but caring enough about me to come to me and work with me in it. We do that because there are people who can't confess it, who are afraid to confess it. And listen, if you're one of those people here this morning, if you're a person who lets the fear of criticism stop you from confessing your weaknesses, please stop. Stop letting that happen. Stop hiding your pain and cultivating self-pity in your heart. Stop it. Please, because you have a church family that wants to carry you through these burdens. Share your burdens with us. And listen, sharing your burdens isn't just a confessional that you go dump all your dirty laundry, you know, into. You're sharing burdens, and there's a flip side of that. You're going to have to be listening to correction. When you share your burdens, be willing to listen to correction so that, so that you can recover, so that you can heal, so that you can grow And then go and serve others and be a productive member of the body of Christ. That's what God desires for us. He wants you to do that because, listen, when when you hurt, the entire body hurts. And when you are healed, the entire body rejoices. We are healed. If one member suffers, we all feel the pain, don't we? We should. But also, this is true. 
If one member prospers, we'll all feel the joy. Because, again, we're one family, one body, united in Christ's love. Let me just end with this quickly here. I want you to to do something practical. It's going to be awkward, okay? Look around at each other for a moment. Look around at your eternal family. Those who are redeemed in this room, you will be with for eternity. How do you care for them now practically? There are people in this room who need you daily. They need daily words of encouragement. They need personal affection and love. There are people here who long for and need godly friendships in their life. There are students here who need people to talk to about their struggles and their fears in life. There are husbands who need help here leading their wives and caring for them personally. There are wives here who struggle with submission to their husbands and honoring them publicly. There are families here who need parenting help. And they need help coping with difficult situations daily. Where are they to go for help? Psychologists? Absolutely not. The body of Christ has more than the world could ever offer in God's grace. Here we have all that is necessary for life and godliness in the revealed word of God if we are willing to share it practically. Put ourselves into the body practically. So I pray that we're not too busy to do that. I pray that we're not too busy with our own selfish interests to take time to care for the needs of others and seek to bear their burdens personally. That's my desire this morning. I want us to be able to come together here on the Lord's Day or on a Wednesday or any day, come together with one voice to glorify our God in heaven who sent his Son to humbly atone for our sins and adopt us into his eternal family. I want us to make much of that when we gather here. I think that is why we are left on the earth. If the glory of Christ is not seen in the church, Ichabod should be written over the door. We want the glory of Christ to be magnified, multiplied through our love for one another. Just because we're small doesn't mean we have a small impact in the world either way. Let's pray that it will be an impact that will actually magnify the greatness of our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the correctives. We thank you for the edification that comes from it. We thank you for the personal application that is so hard for us to take humanly, but yet we need it because we are prone to wander into selfishness and pride. Please purge those deadly enemies from our hearts by turning our eyes to Christ who submitted to your will to conquer our sins for us, to set us free, to walk in obedience in the way in which we care for his bride and magnify his name here on earth as the church. Please do all these things for the praise of your name and for the good of each and every single soul that you have redeemed here in this church. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.